If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the longest treatment of the resurrection in the New Testament, at least in one passage, some 58 verses or so. We are not going to cover all of it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and we want to remind ourselves that without the resurrection, there is no good news. Paul says this to the Corinthian Christians, starting at 15.1. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Pause right there for a minute. Do you believe that? Paul says in Romans that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised, them, raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here and you are not convinced by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, I hope that you are thoroughly convicted and persuaded before you walk out here this morning. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, verse 5, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain or empty, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, in line with Your abundant grace and mercy, would You give us the ability to see with renewed clarity the glory of a crucified and risen Savior. Jesus, we ask that You would 
cause us to see your love of the Father and your love for us that took you to the cross and to the grave. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the ability to be convinced and certain of the truths that we read and think about and dwell on here, and that all of this would be done so that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be glorified for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So there's no good news without the resurrection. In our Good Friday service, we tried to end our brief time together on something of a somber note. We actually asked that as people walked out of the sanctuary that they do so quietly. We tried to minimize, if not uh, eliminate, any sort of backslapping or joke-telling. We wanted to try to, as best we could, capture something of the mindset or the perspective that would have been present for the disciples of Jesus, for the onlookers, who had invested so much hope in the power and life of Christ only to see it seemingly snuffed out in a brutal death. If the resurrection does not happen on Sunday, that somber gloom is not lifted. If the resurrection does not happen on Sunday, as Paul says later in chapter 15, we are still dead in our sins. And if the resurrection did not happen, as Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we only hope in God in this present material life, we have no hope beyond the grave, we are above all people most to be pitied. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, everything that we've done here this morning, everything that we've sung, everything that we talk about, all of our prayers are meaningless. In the verses that we read, I want to take a moment to do three things. One, I want to say a brief word about the word gospel. And then two and three, I want to ask two basic questions. I want to ask the question, why is the gospel important? And then number three, if the gospel is so important, what is it? Seems like that would be good to answer. So number one, just to establish some terms here briefly, gospel. Paul says in 15.1, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel that I preach to you. That's not a word that we, that we have in our normal, everyday, modern American vernacular. People don't go around talking about gospel such and such. It was a term that was probably a little bit more familiar, at least in something of a technical sense during the New Testament era. era. The word gospel just simply means good news. So, I make known to you, or I remind you of the good news that I preach to you that you received, that you accepted, that you believed as true. You know what news is, right? The gospel is good news. 
Everyone knows what news is. News is something that you report. News is something that you proclaim or you announce, right? It's a, it's a statement of fact. It's, a, it's something that happened. News, strictly speaking, is not opinion. News, strictly speaking, is not commentary. The good thing about news is that it does not depend on the reporter to be true. Right? This, let, me, let me go ahead and, and put all cards on the table. This sermon could be the absolute worst sermon that you have ever heard on Easter, and it would not change the fact that the news that we are reporting is true. You may not like or prefer the style or the content of the things that we sing or the things that we pray or there's a little too much bible stuff in here. That's fine. News doesn't depend on whether or not we like it or whether or not we want it to be so. News just is, and it's there. The question is, what are you going to do with it? One of the better illustrations that I've heard before, and I'm going to try to steal it a little bit and build on it just to try to solidify this point, that news is fixed and firm and solid, makes no difference on who is reporting or who is hearing the news. The significance of the resurrection in redemptive history has been compared by way of analogy or illustration to the D-Day invasion in World War II. All the world lies under the doom and gloom and darkness of Hitler's Germany, of the Axis powers. There's a significant day where the Allied forces storm the beaches of Normandy, and they deal a decisive, back-breaking blow to the enemy forces, to the forces of evil. The war was not over once D-Day was won right? We all know that. There was still a lot of hard fighting that was going to be done. There were still going to be casualties. There were going to be people who suffered. But the significance of D-Day was that the victory was so significant and pronounced, anyone who knew that D-Day had taken place knew that it was only a matter of time until the Allies ended up winning the war and the war was over. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Now, let's extend the illustration a little bit. Suppose you are deep behind the enemy lines after the D-Day invasion, and rumors begin to circulate that the Allies have broken in on Normandy Beach, that against all odds they have defeated the beachhead that the Germans had, and that they are now starting to move into France and Europe to liberate people who were occupied and held under the thumb of an evil empire. You're, you're hearing these reports, right? That news is announced. Not long after D-Day, when the news started to go out, the, the Germans, in order to try to keep up morale, they put out a propaganda film. 
I think within a week of D-Day, trying to display or uh, rework the news to say that what happened at, at D-Day on the beaches of Normandy was just sort of a small skirmish that the Germans held. It wasn't really much of an effort or anything like that. We've got it under control. So you've got two competing narratives going out there about what happened at D-Day. If you're behind enemy lines and you're sympathetic to the Germans or to the Axis powers and you believe that the Allied victory at Normandy did not in fact happen, does that mean that it didn't happen? You say, I don't believe that. Does that just magically wipe it away and say, oh, well, I, I, guess, I guess it didn't happen? No, whether you believe the, the word that you're hearing or not, the fact of the matter is, is that what was accomplished at D-Day happened. Your affirming it or acknowledging it doesn't change the truth and the reality of what took place. Similarly, if you are deep behind enemy lines and you are longing for freedom, and news comes to you about the Allied victory at Normandy, you have a challenge on your hands because you're looking around at your town that has been firebombed by the Germans. You're walking around in rubble. Your life does not look or feel or sound any different today than it did yesterday. That still doesn't take away from the fact that victory had been won. There are two people that I have in mind. Number one, if you're a person here who does not believe the report that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and was raised again bodily, physically, I would lovingly encourage you and challenge you to consider that if this report is true, it will remain true whether you believe it, accept it, or not. But here's my hope and prayer. I've already prayed for you, and I have prayed this way. One, that God would be gracious and merciful to open your eyes to see and believe the news that we are announcing but that if it doesn't happen at this time, that you would walk out of here still with this nagging question playing in your mind, but what if it's true? And then for those of you who do believe, you have become, by God's Spirit, convinced of the fact that this report, these eyewitnesses were bearing a true message about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet you labor under spiritual rubble and weakness and gloom. Your Easter Sunday is not particularly bright. My prayer for you has been that in spite of all evidence to the contrary,
whether you feel it to be true or not, that you would have an unshakable confidence that though I stand in rubble, victory has been won. Why is the gospel important? It's not difficult. The gospel is important according to Paul because it's the gospel that we hear, this news, this report about what God has done in Christ. It's hearing that report. It's believing it to be true. It's relying on the victory of Christ to reconcile us to God. It's that message that's heard and believed that actually saves us. Look at verses 1 and 2. I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you don't believe that Jesus died and was raised again, you will not be saved. If you do believe that Jesus has died and been raised again, you will be saved. The gospel is important. The good news about the victory that Christ has won in His death and resurrection is important because it's only through that message and that report that we are turned from our darkness to the saving power of God in Christ, to be delivered from our sin, and to be guaranteed that we are reconciled to our Creator and to our King. Christians, listen very carefully to what Paul says here. There is a temptation, if not a tendency, for those of us who have been privileged and blessed to walk with the Lord for a significant period of time, to oftentimes treat or approach the gospel, the message about Christ crucified and risen again, as something like the ticket that gets us through the gate, or the code that gets us through the door. And then once we get through the gate or we get through the door, we don't need the ticket anymore. The code got me in. I'm in the house. I don't need to worry about it anymore. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says, notice in verse 1, using the past tense, I preached this news to you and you received it. But then at the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2, he says, this message is the message in which also you stand, and verse 2, by which also you are saved. He changes tenses. It's, it's a little bit more difficult to see this in the English, but let me tell you, can, I'm going to nerd out on you just for a second, but this is important. He changes the tenses about standing and being saved. I preached, past tense, you received, past tense. What I preached and you received is what you have come to stand on. He, he puts that standing in the perfect tense, which means that when you, when you came to stand 
on the promise, on the news of God's death and resurrection in the person of Christ. Standing on that word of truth is what is the ground that you continue to stand on right now in this present moment. You don't move off of that simple, profound, basic message that Christ died for sinners, of which I was one. You don't outgrow the fact. You don't become so mature that you don't need to return to the promise and the hope of resurrection again and again and again. The day that you took a stand on that message, you found the ground that you are standing on right now in this present time. And he goes further, and he adds to that when he says that this is the message by which you are saved, he puts that in the present tense so that it would be something like you are standing, continuing to stand on this message now, and you are being saved by that message to the present time on out into the future. Here's the point. If you think that this message that Paul is preaching, that he's going to sum up in verses 3 and 4, Christ crucified, risen again, if you think that is just your entryway in, and that as you grow and mature and you become more sophisticated, you do a little bit more theological reading and you find out, oh, that's just backwater hillbilly stuff that people believe. None of that stuff really actually happens. Paul says you can grow yourself out of salvation. You can become too smart for your own good. You can become too proud to humble yourself and to admit your need for a crucified and risen Savior. If you move off of this message, you move off of salvation. You have no hope for eternal life. You have no hope for the future. This is part of the problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul acknowledges the fact that when they first heard the message, they did believe. Paul is not denying that. What Paul can't believe, what he can't understand, is how you could believe it then, but now come to doubt it and hold it in question, or to think that it's all fine and good for the lower initiates that are coming into the faith, but for us wise, sophisticated people, we're kind of graduating beyond that. This message of God's saving power in the death and resurrection of Christ is what brings us into salvation, and it's the word, the message that we hold to that keeps us in. Every day that we wake up, we're confronted with the reality that we are sinful people. Every day you need to rehearse you need to hear in your mind, in your heart. You need to preach to yourself, I am a sinner, but Christ died for my sins. Every day that you and I wake up, we move and we breathe and we walk around in a world that is broken and chaotic and disordered. Some of that brokenness and chaotic disorder we ourselves have contributed to. 
we need to hear every day. Not only did Christ pay for that sin, that chaos and disorder, Christ has been raised, and we are promised that His new life will be our new life. This is not the way that it's going to remain. This sorrow, this sadness, this grief, this is not the last word. So if it's in hearing the gospel and if it's in clinging the gospel, holding fast to it, that we enter into and remain in this life of salvation that God has provided for us, then the ultimate question is, what is the gospel? What do I need to know? What do I need to believe? What do I need to build my life on to make sure that I'm not throwing it all away? Paul gives it to us in verses 3 and 4. There are more things that Paul could say. In fact, he does say more than this as he continues to go through chapter 15. There are other letters that Paul has written, and Peter and John and James, where the good news that saves us is articulated, but this is it at its core. Everything centers on this. The good news that we hear, that we respond to, that we walk in, that we cling to, is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That is good news. It's good news because that is a big payment that has been made for big sinners. We are major sinners. We sin boldly. We need something more audacious, more costly, more valuable than the weight and the energy of my sin to overcome that. And it takes nothing less than the death of God Himself to pay for that sin. And the good news is that payment has been made in full. Jesus did not come, live a life here on this earth simply to give us a good model to follow. He did not simply come to say, this is what it looks like to live with love for your neighbor, for your brother and your sister. He did that, don't get me wrong. He came because we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He came because we were without God and without hope in this world. And He paid our debt so that we could be made free and be reconciled to God. It took nothing nothing less than God in the flesh, God dying to do that for us. And if you don't believe that that's what God did for you, 
when Christ died on the cross, you have nowhere else to go to be reconciled to your Creator and your King. But as we said, if all that Christ did was die on the cross, if there is no resurrection, Paul says even that is not sufficient. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He actually died. And He was raised on the third day. Let us be clear about what we do not mean when we say that Christ was raised on the third day. This is what we do not mean. We do not mean that He was raised spiritually. We do not mean that He was raised metaphorically. We do not mean that He was raised or He has been risen in our hearts in some sort of sympathetic way. No. That is not good news. What Paul means, what we mean, what Christians confess when we say that He was raised on the third day, is that the man that went into the tomb is the man who came out. We mean to say that He was literally bodily raised. That when His body was put in the tomb, His heart was not beating. His lungs were not drawing breath. He was not breathing. But that on Sunday, what would that have been like? On Sunday, a dead heart starts to beat. And the chest begins to rise and fall as air begins to be sucked into the lungs again. And the body that was laid out on the tomb sits up and walks out. And the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is that exactly what God did with His Son is what He promises to do with every single person who has placed their trust in Him. Unless the Lord returns, everyone in this room, sooner or later, expected or not, is going to be laid prostrate on a slab. We will die. But if we die in faith, with Christ, every single person who is guaranteed to die in Christ is guaranteed to live in Christ as well. That body that lays prostrate on a slab, that body that is laid in the ground, Paul says one day is going to be called forth. And our bodies, dead and decaying though they are, are going to live and breathe again and be restored, never to die again. Death has been defeated. 
This is it, Edgewood. If this is not good enough news for you, we got nothing else to give. If you're here and you're not persuaded by this, we have nothing else to offer you. There is nothing better that God can offer His people aside from the promise and the guarantee that our sins have been paid for and covered and dealt with, that we have been reconciled to Him, that we no longer have to fear Him as judge, that He can love us as Father, and that even when the weight and the burden of this world finally takes its toll and we breathe our last, that is not going to be the last breath that we draw. We will all one day live and breathe and walk in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He died and lives again. He stands, He sits in the heavens with a human physical body, guaranteeing that one day we, with a physical human body, will also one day be in the presence of God Himself in pure joy and bliss. That is good news. Bow with me in prayer. God, help us how easy it is to be so discouraged and so distracted by so many trivial things, to think that the powers and the authorities in this world, in this life, hold sway over our fate and destiny when actually they have already been disarmed. They have been rendered impotent. They have no hold on us anymore. Help us, we ask, to continually return to the life-giving truth that Christ died for our sins and that He has been raised again and that He lives to make intercession for all who come to Him. Father, I ask that if there is anyone in this room right now who has not come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, who has not had, who does not know that their sin debt has been paid for, that you would draw them irresistibly by the power of your Spirit, that you would so compel them to take advantage of this gift of life, that they would run to you to find you to be generous in your giving of life. Jesus, we thank you that you did not hold back, but that you gave all that was required so that we could receive all of the blessing that God had in store for His people in full. Would you help us to live in joy and gratitude, expressing our thanksgiving in song and even in our actions? for this new life in which we live. We pray this in the name of our crucified, risen, and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Amen. We're going to sing. Andy, let's sing. Amen. Let's stand as we respond in worship.
Cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his face, his feet, my Savior, that cursed body bowed and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. And on the rejoicing with him we'll see the face of jesus we'll all be there glorifying him amen
praise him. Continue to praise him as our benediction in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May God bless you. He is risen.